I also feel like I've really only exist in community with other people. So I, I never, I'm never really like creating any work that is alone. It's usually basically referencing people that have come before me and also kind of in my orbit. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. Today I'm talking to Alice Grandois-Schutka. Alice is a research-based designer, host, and publisher. She is co-founder and editor-in-chief of Dean Journal, a biannual print magazine that centers design as a social practice. If you've been listening to Clever for a while, you know I'm a huge fan of Deem. And you can listen to my interviews with the other co-founders, Marquise Stillwell on episode 121 and New Gote on episode 170. Alice, also together with New Gote, started the design studio Room for Magic, where a lot of the work focuses on cultural research and strategy. She also works in hospitality and food design via Earthseed Provisions, and currently she and her partner own and operate a non-restaurant in Copenhagen called Tombo. It's also worth noting that music and Japanese culture have been major influences in her approach. Alice has covered a lot of ground on her creative path so far, and is deliberate about not limiting herself to specific categories or disciplines. She describes her work over the past 15 years as experimental, referential, and relational, existing at the intersection of arts, community engagement, and food. And she's about to take us on a magical tour that winds through all of that. Here's Alice. My name is Alice Grandois-Schutka, and I'm a cultural researcher, designer, publisher, and host. And I am originally from New York, now living between many different cities. And I do the many things that I do because I inherently love to listen. And through these rituals of listening, I kind of find myself becoming grounded in possibilities that really kind of inform both better presence and also better futures. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. 
The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. That is possibly the best explanation I've ever heard of why you do what you do. I love that it's all grounded in the ritual of listening because as my work on, on this show and story stewardship has progressed, I also feel really connected to and empowered by the act of listening. And so I really want to hear what you have to say about that. Let's start perhaps at the very beginning, your formative years. Paint the picture of your childhood for me. I was born in New York City, um, and I lived in a part of town called Cambria Heights, Queens, in my formative years, um, along with a pretty massive family. I was born to actually Haitian immigrants um, who moved to New York in the 60s and 70s. And I spent a lot of time with my family, thankfully. In Haitian culture, kids are essentially taught that their essential function as a child is to listen. So I think maybe that is a way of kind of anchoring into that practice. And it's kind of funny, I haven't (laughs) connected those together, but I'm pretty positive my mom wouldn't disagree. My formative years in my youth were pretty chill, and I'm, I'm very thankful about them. It really included a lot of time with my family, like my grandparents, aunts, my uncles. I have a huge squad of cousins, and I also had a chance to spend a lot of solo time with my mom as a kid. It's interesting because we will get into the makings of a publication that I that I work on, but I had a I had a moment in the making of our second issue where I had a chance to kind of go back and and, and reflect on my childhood, and I had realized quite early on that I actually went to a a Montessori school when I was younger, but like super young, like maybe in my first round at kindergarten. And I really loved that experience so much because it was this very kind of like unstructured space, but there were these many different forms of listening. It's such an early memory that I can't, it's something I can't necessarily recall, but I can feel. And I've been able to connect later on in my life around maybe how it's formed me as a thinker and beer and listener. But I also remember it being very clear when I changed schools, it was hard for me to kind of acclimate, essentially, to kind of more of a rigid, structured way of kind of existing in the world. Um, And then I basically also have a birthday that's pretty late in December. And sometimes, like, especially when you're super young, if you don't meet a cutoff date, they make you kind of like repeat a class again. So I guess in essence, I did kindergarten twice. And so the first time was at Montessori. And then the second time I was at a Catholic school, which is Actually, most of the schools I went to most of my life. I remember in that class, in the second go-round at kindergarten, which was a lot more structured and rigid, my teacher asked me, she was kind of doing these end-of-the-year interviews, and she'd asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. She was kind of doing these one-on-ones. They were all tape-recorded with the microphone. The idea was to get you on record saying what you wanted to be when you grow up in your age six, essentially. And I told my teacher that I wanted to be a star. (laughs) And she was completely puzzled but then was also trying to kind of maybe clarify what i meant and she was like oh do you want to be like a celebrity like a musician she was like really looking for something to for her to grasp onto and i just remember saying like very frankly to her like no i want to be a star like a star in the sky it's really been a very interesting i think memory to reflect on because it's kind of come back to me i think in the past 10 years but i just think about that a lot as like maybe me never 
placing myself on planet earth kind of back to my former intro like maybe there's always a part of me that feels like i've existed within the cosmos since i was six and i feel like that is maybe a way of thinking about my youthful imagination at that time oh i love that i just got goosebumps the minute you said i want to be a star before you explained that's where i went i was like oh she wants to be a carbon-based um (laughs) twinkle in the sky and I also think from a designer's perspective, what a fascinating experiment to do kindergarten twice with two very different pedagogical frameworks. Unfortunately, you were kindergarten age, so you couldn't really like process all of the differences. You had to adjust to them. But looking back on it, I'm sure it's provided a kind of interesting control for different ways of being also being a child of, of immigrants, you know, I'm, I was kind of constantly in the act of translation. So having to listen in just different ways. So, you know, my family speaks three different languages. They speak English, they speak Haitian Creole, they speak French, and I'm kind of trying to navigate, you know, a whole new experience that they haven't had as a first generation child living in America, essentially. So I think both that experience, but also that has informed how I've also had to navigate multiple spaces in my life. And I do think that maybe the the tool for navigating has always been like, okay, I need to kind of like listen a little bit deeply, listen to all the different things that maybe I can't perceive with my eyes or even perceive with my ears. Like maybe it's a, a felt thing. So I, I feel like that's kind of maybe where I can idea a little bit of, of how I've started to cultivate that practice. Yes. Listening and then translating, that would make a lot of sense for why you can sort of move so fluidly between both practices and spots on the globe. So how did this evolve in your adolescence? In my adolescence, I actually attended an all-girls high school. I always like to kind of talk about this because I also think it was another formative time in my life. And I wasn't really fond of this idea (laughs) Uh, when my mom had proposed it to me at 13, 14. In hindsight, I'm actually so happy for the decision that she made to send me there. It allowed me actually then kind of like listen to and experience myself and my intellectual interests and also cultivate a point of view kind of in an independent, like independent of the male gaze, which when you're in adolescence can really become quite prominent. I also feel like there's like a general type of confidence that I left high school with, which reflecting on it recently, I'm just like, wow, like if I could access my like 18 year old self, the the type of confidence I left that space with was unprecedented just because you know, that was an experience that I had that I had for four years of just being super comfortable in my space um, with who I am. The gaze happens in many different ways. There wasn't also like the patriarchy taking up a lot of space in the day to day. I felt like it was a little bit more spacious. When I think about listening, I think it allowed me to like really understand how to listen at a time when I think that that's quite formative. As you've emerged from that school or in your adulthood, have you had conversations with and compared and contrasted the experience of somebody who went to, let's say, a public school or a co-educational <laughs> environment where they were subject to the patriarchy and the male gaze in a more pronounced way? I mean, I think it was very clear. I mean, my, I have a one of my, I'm still good friends with a friend of mine from high school, Olivia, who I love dearly. And we talk about it a lot because I think when we all went to college, it was just very clear the way that different people learned to articulate themselves and also like the limitations that they maybe felt in a classroom setting. I also have always went to kind of small schools with small class sizes. So I think it's, I've always tried to feel somewhat comfortable in those spaces, but I think there was just a certain type of confidence that you left a certain way of articulating yourself and the things that you cared about, at least 
at that age that I found to be very interesting when I would go on to college and see that people were just, yeah, maybe like a little bit more hesitant to, to state a position on something or hesitant to even really know how they felt about something. Maybe it was a space where I was able to cultivate a communication and a vocabulary around feelings. I think I felt it when I, when I left. I think it was very clear also because I went to liberal arts colleges. There's also not a whole lot of guys there. So I'm not sure if it's the best kind of litmus test, but I did sense a bit of a difference. And also just even the types of conversations that we would have, or even just like the, the way that people would express themselves with clothing and just like small, like, like small little things. I mean, I also always laugh because I wore a uniform most of my life. I always laugh now that in my adult life, I wish I wore a uniform. And then also learning to accentuate with different types of accessories, which is quite interesting to think about that piece as well. I think also, like, while I was in high school, I also had a lot of kind of, I think, creative interests. A little bit of kind of where that took me was that I guess a lot of my points of creativity were centered around dance and movement and also music. I was a part of a dance team that was also like a competition team. And I, I really loved music. And I actually absolutely loved magazines and books about music and culture. I remember this vividly. There was a book that had just come out that I only found out about because I was reading a magazine and it was like talking about new books and it was a hip hop anthology. And it was like a massive textbook essentially called uh, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, written by Jeff Chang. And it came out, I think, in my junior year of high school. And I had, again, discovered it from this magazine. And I was just so obsessed with just, I think, reading this massive document that I think was presented in the way that I was learning information, which was in these massive textbooks, essentially. I'll never forget taking them to school with me and pretty much like placing it in the middle of my textbook to make it seem like I was reading the textbook, but I was actually reading the book. But there was just something also fundamental about that experience that I think really allowed me to understand kind of the power of narrative. I think it was very much inherently about hip hop culture, its beginnings. It really, it's like an archive. It's a document of kind of evidence of how the culture kind of started and where it had evolved to at that point. And I feel like I hadn't really read anything or engaged with material around a culture that I felt like I was a part of, at least in some way, shape or form. And it was just a, a super transformative time for me. And I feel like I also kind of took that or really kind of held that with me in my adolescence as well. Yeah, because when it's presented to you in a massive textbook, and it's organized in a way that includes like historical research and a scholarly perspective and validates its importance and its creative legitimacy. It's accessible in a new way. Indeed. I went to a lot of schools where the history was just actually sometimes really boring to me because I just always felt like there were things that were missing. And I also felt like it was interesting, the history classes, but I also felt like there was maybe a history for me that wasn't being represented or a history that I felt closer to vis-a-vis -vis my family and just Haitian history that I was I was actually more interested in. So it was just kind of nice to, I think, use that as pretty much, I think, in my adolescence, start kind of making spaces for me to pursue the things that I was naturally interested in. Um, and I, I, yeah, I, I really think about that book and my love of magazines at that time as like an entry point into how I can learn a variety of new things and also have a space where multiple points of view kind of come together. It also seems to me like magazines and books were tools of agency for you. Yes. You mentioned when you went to study liberal arts. Can you tell me about that chapter of your life? And I'm so fascinated by how at this point you're you're seeing the world, your creative agency is already kind of coming together through listening and knowledge seeking, but you're observational to the point that you're sort of recognizing all of these subtle differences in the way people have developed 
in different situations as well. What were the formative experiences that happened for you in, in college? I think the biggest thing is that I chose to pursue liberal arts because perhaps maybe you're sensing that I've always maybe held a variety of interests. And so it was maybe always hard for me to narrow my scope to one discipline. I also think I have fundamentally an issue with the disciplining of knowledge anyway. So I think it was just like a little bit of me trying to break away from that. And there were just so many things that I really enjoyed. I think if there was two through lines or two main kind of highlights of that education, I think it was really thinking a little bit more around anthropology. And also, I think thinking about kind of creative engagement through the arts, those were kind of the the two things that I feel like I took away that I'm like, these things still really exist. I also had a lot of space to experiment, maybe at one point thought I wanted to work in the nonprofit space. So kind of took a lot of uh, interesting classes on, on kind of nonprofit management, also some things around quote unquote emerging markets. I was just interested in it all. Like, what is it? What is going on? How can I like chart a path for myself? And I want to know everything. At its core, I think the time spent kind of really cultivating a practice in anthropology. And I think also really thinking about how those things then come into a more engaging kind of format were the things that I feel like I took with me outside of that time. So that makes sense thinking about the work that you're doing. Maybe you can chart a path for us. I love that you're anti the pigeonholing of knowledge or practice. I don't think that's inherently good for anybody. But how did you sort of navigate the post-college early career years in terms of all of these different interests? And how did you pull yourself through to what you're doing right now? I think it's been a 15-year practice of doing that. So can I read just a, a section from your bio? It says your work over the past 15 years is experimental, referential, and relational, existing at the intersection of arts, community engagement, and food. So just to set our listeners up for w the journey we're about to go on, <laughs> please <laughs> tell us. <laughs> Thanks for that setup before anybody feels like they went on a whole trip where they weren't prepared to go there with us. Basically, I kind of knew what my starting point was going to be like when I left high school. I have an older sister who is actually around 15 years my senior and did a very thriving kind of a career in music. Uh, most specifically in events and artist management. And I pretty much just wanted to be her replica at that time. Pretty much she was very generous to me um, when I was kind of like, you know, people would have different types of odd jobs for summer in high school and summer in college and pretty much my odd job, but it was actually a, a, a quite a valuable currency at the time was pretty much being like the person that would go around her events and like collecting names for the email list. And I was very excited about it. Music had been such a big part of my life. And I also just felt like it was a certain it was a certain language that spoke across so many different life experiences. And I just found it to be such a powerful tool. And I was very moved by it. So I wanted to be involved in music. And also I had done some time abroad and had kind of fell in love with the burgeoning music scene that was kind of happening in the UK. This is like around the time of Amy Winehouse kind of uh, being discovered and, and starting to record music. When I got back, I was like, I this is what I know I want to do. And I want to work with musicians like this. And I, I need to find a way to do it. So I navigated with the help of my sister, a uh, finding a way into an internship at a, at a major label, had a really interesting experience there. But I think also it became very clear to me that that wasn't the way that I wanted to actually participate. I think the music industry at the time was also, I think, on this cusp of like needing to kind of completely change the way I thought about music as a business. 
And if I'm also being quite frank, there was just a lot of misogynistic kind of practices that I had seen implemented during that time. And I was like, I, I can't stand this and I don't want to be a part of this, but I know I want to be a part of music. Did you consider that informative or disillusioning? I think it was informative. It was a way of collecting data. And I was like, now I know. <laughs> now I know that this is the way it is behind these doors. And now I also know that this is not what I want to do. I, I think a lot of these experiences, you know, are learnings. And I'm always like, it's better for me to know what I when I learn what I don't want, then I can be more um, explicit about what I do want. It was very clear to me. And at that point, I had had another opportunity to go work actually at a, at a black owned digital media agency in Harlem, which is where I met actually some of a lot of my collaborator, my current collaborators, um, New is among one of them. New Gautier, your co-founder of Deem Journal, also previous episode of uh, Clever Podcast. Yes, New Gautier, I met there. I met my friend Brian. I met a mentor of mine there as well. I really love that time because I had a lot of freedom to just kind of come in and experiment with what I thought the music space could be. And I had the chance to experiment with new mediums. I mean, at the time, there was also like the blog format. So I had pretty much like proposed that, you know, if we wanted to be like a part of music culture, we needed to have a platform for disseminating new ideas around music. And I had pitched a, a blog called The Blast. I pretty much actually ran editorial while I was working at the digital media agency around this kind of like subculture of musicians that was kind of uh, forming in, in, in New York City, most specifically around the Lower East Side and, and also in Brooklyn. And basically, for about six years, really did that. Also kind of started a, a platform called Homebase, where I had a chance to kind of work with a lot of emerging talent. I was very much enamored by frameworks of, of A&R and uh, artist development and really wanted to think about how I could bring that into my practice. So I had a chance to work with musicians, artists, and also work with them in, in different formats like live performances. I had a chance to start a um, video platform where I did kind of interviews with specific artists. And just, I think, also really cultivate a point of view. I also had a bit of a place-based practice around that where there was a creative commune in Ditmas Park. Um, and I had a chance to actually publish a an, an EP of, of five records with artists that I was pretty much working with around this time. And I feel really thankful for that experience. I think it was all very much community engaged. And again, at this time was a was a time when artists were really looking for new platforms for how they can get their music out there and be discovered. How could they actually create careers alongside the major labels? Because it became very clear at that time that that wasn't the only way of existing. Carving the paths and opening the channels for a more independent route in the music industry. Yeah. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. 
Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I need to hear more about this creative commune, please. It is also, I would say, 
place that taught me so much. It was called the Clubhouse. It was in Ditmas Park, Brooklyn, which if you've never been, it's just such an interesting part of New York. There's all types of cultures coexisting there. And then there's also like this little kind of pocket of Ditmas Park that has these Victorian style mansions, essentially. Interestingly enough, I had met the people that were kind of running this space through home base, uh, through a mixtape that I had put out for South by Southwest, I think in 2009. And um, at this time, Southwest, South by Southwest was where a lot of new talent were going to kind of be discovered and share their music. And as somebody that was kind of cultivating a platform, I had basically put forth a mixtape of like, if you're here, here's what you need to be kind of listening to. The song was called Life of a Lover. It was produced by the Clubhouse, who basically were the kind of producers that were living in this commune. And there was an artist, the- uh, Theophilus London, who um, was on the record, essentially. And I remember hearing the record and I was just like, this is one of the most amazing songs I've heard in forever. And I need to know who these people are that made it. And I think when we- when I got back to New York, I had a chance to go to a release party and I had a chance to meet them. It was Andrew and Matt, who were the two producers that were kind of like organizing everybody. And basically the commune was full of a lot of kind of classically trained jazz musicians, most of them from Texas, that had all found each other in Brooklyn and were coexisting with each other. This sounds magical. It was amazing. And I, and I was like, okay, they told, us, told me about the house and I was like, okay, I need to find a way to get there. I had a chance. They invited me over. And when I got there, I was like, this is so magical. And I remember just saying like, if there's ever an opening here, please give me a call. I think it ended up being maybe a year and a half afterwards. Some people were moving out. I think I was first on the list because I had also between then and that time had actually worked on this EP where they actually were the producers of the EP. And I really kind of wanted to talk about them kind of being a space of cultivating artists because they had this really amazing way of that all of them collaborating with each other by kind of holding these jam sessions. And then pretty much like they would just be long form jams. And then they would pretty much like edit and sample their live jams into kind of a, into tracks essentially. And so I was just very fascinated by that process. And I had also wanted to bring them into you know, the community of artists that I was also kind of supporting in a way. So to do that, we made this EP called Live from the Clubhouse. As I also mentioned, I had a chance to live there and another one of my formative times in my 20s, because I feel, you know, living with eight different musicians at once in, in New York was equal parts crazy and equal parts beautiful. You had a chance to really learn how to live with people, you know, and I think that that's such a fundamental lesson that I really hope that more people do you have a chance to practice like what it means to kind of co-live with each other, what it means to coexist, what it means to actually care for each other. I mean, it does sound really beautiful, but it's also, I think, out of necessity of like living in New York and needing to and wanting to have a decent quality of life for yourselves. You know, you basically come together and you share resources to be able to do that. Yeah, I'm always so thankful for that, for that community that I still hold very dear to my heart. I'm so glad you told us about that. You painted it in such vivid detail that I, I kind of feel like I, or I want to be there. So you were present for some of these long form jam sessions? Yes, they were amazing. I mean, again, some of the best musicians, they've, played, they've all gone on to play for so many other kind of icons as well, but also just genuinely really like good human beings, you know, and I, I, I feel very thankful um, to have been a part of that. Well, you know, sometimes the universe, if you follow the gravitational pull, it, it just sort of brings you into the right spaces. It does. And I have a lot of faith in that. And I think that, you know, as I talk about this 15 year experimental, referential, relational practice, I think it's really been the listening (laughs) that has actually allowed me to move with the kind of flow of things. And I think also be very clear about what it is that I 
want or who it is that I actually want to be in relation with, which I think is quite interesting. I mean, I, I don't really try to write like explicit bios just because I think that also just the way I, I use language is like I, I want people to build a relationship with it. So it means I can't give you everything in the bio. We need to have a conversation. It's so much more complex than maybe what I could write that's static on a website. But I think if I could talk a little bit about those kind of three prong entry points of, you know, this experimentation has always been a way of kind of practicing something else. In a sense, there's always been like a bit of a, a renegotiation for me. Like there's always this kind of dissatisfaction with some status quo or way of being. And then the experiment is a is essentially like an intervention of renegotiation in terms of things being referential. You know, I also feel like I've really only exist in community with other people. So I, I never, I'm never really like creating any work that is alone or actually centered around me. It's usually basically referencing people that have come before me and also referencing people that are kind of in my orbit. And in addition to that, I think the relationality is always kind of the biggest part of the practice because it is like inherently dedicated to making meaning and also making meaning with others. And so I feel like, again, across this kind of time of, of the 15 year span of, you know, music, arts, uh, visual arts, publishing, which I haven't gotten into yet. Well, the blog. Yeah, the blog started. And then, I mean, I'm pretty much giving you like 20 to 26. And then I think pretty much like 26 to 28. I'm pretty much starting to work with kind of major brands that are interested in connecting with culture. And, and basically at that point, after cultivating my own community based practice, they see me as an asset. So then I end up working with them on kind of strategies around doing this work. And at the same time, I maybe start not moving away from music, but I think starting to venture out in other formats of media making. Interestingly enough, the blog is one way of doing editorial. Even the EP, you know, is an act of publishing in its own way, like bringing together those artists and that point of view. And then I think really, I also... I feel like maybe at this time I'm kind of reading a lot of Audre Lorde and I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking about my position as a, as a feminist and also my position as a, as a creative being, also trying to kind of sustain a livelihood from my creativity in the mid 20s in, in, in New York. So I start moving into, yes, working with brands, but then also still wanting to kind of be anchored in community. And I had the wonderful opportunity of assembling a team of creatives from a, from a Brooklyn based incubator to kind of think about what type of media women kind of were interested in at the time. It was really kind of around this era of the kind of it girl editorial. Those stories felt very reductive and also not representative of, of what it really meant to be a creative person. You would always kind of get these very linear stories of like, one day I did this, then I did this, and then I got a call from so-and-so, and now I'm directing this video. And it just, they always <laughs> just felt so lackluster and so unreal to me. And so... I was having a lot of conversations actually with women around me at the time, people that were in a variety of, in of creative industries. And so when I had the opportunity to kind of pitch something to this Brooklyn-based incubator, I had basically assembled a team of creative professionals across multiple disciplines to produce and publish kind of a limited edition print-only magazine that was very much uh, focused on kind of highlighting like very distinct contributions of women across the arts and culture and basically academia. At the time, we were pretty much interested in kind of pushing some discourse around a variety of topics, again, beyond the it girl, 
you know, we also wanted to kind of understand and have and shape stories around actually the challenges and failures that inherently are a part of a creative practice. Because I feel like that's actually the space for learning. And those weren't popular stories at the time. No, they. but I agree with you. And I don't think anyone who wants a creative path can truly identify with an it girl where the story is only point A to skyrocket to fame. I need to see something that's a little more granular and that that has a little more reality baked into it in terms of, well, what kind of decision making had to go on in order for you to get from here to here? And so thank you for that. It was a healing thing for us as well, like to be like, we need more stories like this. I think it was also when I think about Top Break was also a little bit of an experiment in like what it means to maybe create like a working or collaborative culture for women by women in a way, maybe a little bit pre girl boss era, not that it's related to that, but just I think really like, you know, as you now know, like being in collaboration with women and, and like has always kind of been like, it's, it's a way that I learned as an adolescent, <laughs> you know, it's not something that comes unnatural to me, but I think also so many myths around archaic beliefs around women being too dramatic or like we're too difficult to work with. So of course we couldn't only work with ourselves. I was just so interested in in what that experience was going to bring to us. And I felt like it was just so formative. Also just another space to do something independent of patriarchal influence, something that is also, I think, helping us feel into some things. So it was really putting forth an intersectional point of view around women's media and women's experiences as well, which was really important to us. And so I was thankful for that time. In addition to the publication, we had a chance to basically work on a few different kind of uh, live experiences, exhibitions, talks, screenings. I loved at the time that we had, you know, this kind of hybrid uh, existence. And we also moved across a few different geographies. I mean, the magazine was pretty prominent in New York and in Paris and in Berlin and in London. What was it called? It was called Top Rank Magazine. (laughs) It was a one of one. As I see it, it was a cultural intervention, um, and I feel really happy about it. And actually, the work had afforded us an invite to the Obama White House in 2016, I think it was, to participate in a women's forum to discuss a lot of key issues and topics to be addressed at the first of its kind, which was the United States of Women's Summit, I think, in June of 2016. You were there? I didn't read about that in the research. This is exciting. Tell me about this. (laughs) So yeah, so that was really exciting. I mean, culture has always been really important to me. So I think it's just been really key to see how it is a part of a larger ecosystem of change. This was also somewhat of a hyper-local, still with some international relevance, but it was quite a hyper-local publication. So it was just really kind of beautiful to see it kind of be formative enough for somebody to see it for what it was and to understand its importance and kind of driving and shaping conversations around policy, actually, and how women exist. So I was just really thrilled to have been there and also just to have witnessed kind of what can become of cultural interventions, if you really kind of believe it. That was my first foray into print publishing, I would say. And I I feel very thankful for that time and to all the women that I had a chance to work with. They're all incredible people in their own rights. Actually, the publication still exists currently as a podcast, which is led by Isabel Flower and Marcel Rosa Salas. They just make a really amazing kind of long form podcast around a variety of topics. And it makes me really happy that it still lives on in that shape and highly recommend anybody checking it out. Of course, we'll include a link in the show notes. That was your first foray into print publishing, which is sort of foreshadowing for Deem. Are there major chapters in between this and Deem? Yeah, I mean, I think just really what happens is 2017 comes by, you know, and things change politically. 
Also, during this time while I'm working on Top Rank, I'm also, you know, still working with brands. So I'm doing multiple things. But I think I also kind of stop in my tracks for a little bit to think about how I'm spending my time. Things became quite dark during that change. And I just had a lot of thoughts around, like, if today is my last day, how will I say that I've spent my last day on Earth? And I basically was like, I want to I want to feel satisfied in whatever that response would be. And at that time, it was okay for me, you know, during a different era where I felt like maybe more hopeful to be able to, like, spend my time basically doing things that were good for culture, but were also, in essence, kind of harmful. It was never okay. I think that I understood it for what it was during the hopeful era. And I think when it no longer was that, it became very clear to me that, like, I only have so much time and I need to actually really, one, reclaim it and two, uh, reapply it, essentially. So I chose to leave a job and I didn't necessarily have a plan, but I knew I would find one. I knew I was cultivating one, rather. I was just kind of like, I need some time. I, I can't like jump into anything else. I just need some time to kind of shape what this looks like. Can I unpack a little bit of that subtext? When you're talking about doing things that are good, but also kind of harmful, are you talking about working with brands? Yes. Basically, in 2017, I was very clear that, you know, while I had really enjoyed working with brands, doing very interesting activations, I mean, for somebody that came from doing a lot of activations at the grassroots level, it was really interesting and, and relieving to feel kind of resourced to be able to do it and to also be able to feel like you're redistributing resources to artistic communities that can continue to create. You know, it was really interesting to me, but I also feel like there was a point where I had to just be very clear about my position that, you know, a lot of the brands that I was working with, I didn't necessarily believe in their ethos and their products, actually. And I didn't think that it was worth spending my time and my labor helping them kind of connect to communities that I actually care very deeply about to only be able to sell them products. Oh, yeah, I feel your conflict there. That's tough. And so that's a hard decision to make. But I also knew that there would be other ways of, of rethinking this and maybe independent of, of the brands that I was working with at that time. It is not to say that I don't, there's always something that's inherently tied to a brand, sadly, no matter where I move to. But I think it's really, again, this renegotiation of like, what do you get? What do I get? What do communities get? And I think this actually kind of is a good segue into how I came together with New to form Room for Magic. And basically around this time, New had just finished a degree at Parsons in strategic design management. And he was working at a couple of agencies. He was actually living in San Francisco at the time. And we had basically just talked. I mean, I pretty much had let him know I was leaving my job. And he was just also, I think, growing increasingly dissatisfied with the way in which he was working. But we also understood the tools that we had cultivated in working with brands, this act of, quote unquote, just uh, driving desirability and like being able to create kind of lifestyles and, and being able to kind of create narratives around things. So we were very clear about those tools, but we basically wanted to repurpose them. Like how could we actually reutilize these tools to kind of like shift people's attention to things that they need to be thinking about things that really affect us on the day to day. I feel like we're on a superhero story right now. <laughs> this is amazing. This is how superheroes get forged. Okay. Keep, keep going. I also during the time um, I decided I was going to take a, a short sabbatical and come back to myself, really understand clearly what, what, what it was that we wanted to be doing. And when I came back from that time, New was pretty much ready to go. We had basically said, hey, like, we're making this plan. It was, I think, August or July. And he was like, by the end of the year, I'm going to leave my job. He was living in San Francisco at the time. And he said he was going to move to Los Angeles. And I was like, great. I had moved to Los Angeles also during this time from New York. So I was pretty much, I think, preparing all this time for all the things that were to come. But we didn't really know what it was. You know, it was just more like, 
We know that we want to have a studio together. We know that we want to actually enhance the tools that we have by really working with communities that we love and respect and also protecting them through the work that we're doing. So that was a really big way in which kind of Room for Magic came together. And actually, as Room for Magic was forming, New had received a call from Marquise, who he had formerly did a fellowship with. And Marquise was also formerly on the Clever podcast. You know, we get this call from Marquise and he's really interested about starting a publication that thinks about design. And as you might be able to kind of discern, I, I love publishing. I love making media. I love bringing voices together. And so the mere idea of it was just extremely thrilling for me. And at the same time, we were also, you know, starting a studio. It's actually quite amazing because I think it really became a space where the journal allowed us to really, I think, establish our point of view and translate it into our practice um, on the studio side of things. And so I've just been really thankful for that experience, but it's also really nice to start to trace everything and, and, and kind of uh, weave them together because I feel like we've just kind of been existing and making and doing things over the past few years, but this time of reflection, um, I'm very thankful for it, Amy. So. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm so grateful for you sharing the story. And as you're retelling your, your life to me, I'm seeing how this is all weaving together, but not only that, but the weave is getting tighter and stronger. The tapestry is starting now to reveal a real narrative. It sounds like Deem was well-placed in terms of its conception, the coming together of you and New and Marquise. And you're the editor-in-chief. It's a biannual print magazine that centers design as a social practice, which makes perfect sense. But it's also just an incredibly valuable document for conversations around how design, social, cultural, creative intervention happens all over the place. We just don't necessarily call it design, but it absolutely is people using their creative agency to shape the future. I'm sort of getting choked up because I think it's such a powerful, powerful publication, but you do such an amazing job of framing these conversations and while it has a distinct point of view, it also allows a lot of room for independent point of view and for the reader to gain knowledge and form their own opinions and be exposed to so many, so many wonderful voices that don't typically get talked about in the design with a capital D world. So congratulations for what I think is a really, really profound work. And also congratulations on the longevity. You just released issue four, A Sense of Place. I wonder if you can tell us about that issue and tell us about your work as editor-in-chief um, as we talk about Deem Journal. Well, thank you very much for that. I hope that um, anyone that's listening feels like <laughs> it is all coming together or making sense of how we've arrived here. Issue four, A Sense of Place, is our most recent issue. Um, it is led by a conversation with a multidisciplinary artist and designer, Theoster Gates. And he really kind of, you know, lays a foundation for kind of a, a place-based practice, essentially. And our intent with the fourth issue, and I think every issue is a bit of an, an investigation of something in particular, in this particular instance, it is around the the concept of place. And, and I think for us, we're talking about design, but we're also trying to place the scope beyond design um, and architecture generally. Language is something that we acknowledge as both a powerful tool that can either, you know, liberate and or 
be commodified. And so I think a lot of people, when they hear place, maybe especially in the context of design, are thinking about place making. But I think we're thinking about place and its making. And also, I think moving beyond kind of theories around place and really kind of opening up explorations that are both highly open-ended and also subjective. And I think each issue kind of becomes like us understanding what sets of social relations need to kind of achieve X, Y, and Z, or are we thinking about in terms of X, Y, and Z, the X, Y, and Z is that each issue has a different theme. And then we extend invitations to people to kind of uh, contribute based off of their lived experience around the theme. And so in issue four, we're really thinking about like what types of new places um, have emerged from actually new, newly recognized needs. And also being honest that like new types of spaces have been enabled by things like the internet, the digital and the virtual. So we just have really, I think, kind of opened up that conversation to think about place, um, to also think about place from a felt sense as well. Place is really not something that can be made for others, but it's a it's an experience that's very personal and also uh, very significant and has a variety of interpretations that was really important for us to highlight in this issue, or it's actually important for us to highlight across any issue. One of the things that I say about Dima is that I think you could literally maybe switch out a cover story across each issue and you, it would still, the, the rest of the stories would still make sense in, in a way. Um, because I do think that there is this kind of through line across the issues around designing the conditions for possibilities, plural. And that's kind of, I think the way or the entry point in which we take to kind of, uh, to produce theme. I would love to just recap for our listeners. Issue one was designing for dignity. Issue two was a pedagogy for a new world. Issue three was envisioning equity. And now we're at issue four, which is a sense of place. And and there is a total through line. And, and it all is, as you say, about envisioning possibilities. One of the things I guess that I want to talk about in relationship to Deem and issue four and also all of the issues is that I'm very interested in the undisciplining of knowledge, right? And so I think there is also this necessity to kind of engage with plurality around design, which is why the issues read the way that they do, which is yes. also why maybe sometimes you might not read it cover to cover. You need to sit with each story and kind of embody it in a way and then yeah. move on to the next one. They do require digestion. It's very nutritious. I've been thinking a lot about something that uh, Jenny O'Dell has talked about recently, like kind of designers as orchestrators of, at- of attention. And so there's a couple of ways in which I see this happening. And, and I think one of them is really like each issue kind of creates a space for you to kind of shift your attention to. And I think with attention kind of being held somewhere, also connection is formed. And so I guess the whole idea is that there is this intention for people to kind of connect deeply with the topics in some way, shape or form, but also form their own relationship to it. I love that when people talk about design as social practice, because not Every person doesn't have the same response to what their interpretation of that is. And that is fundamentally what makes me really happy <laughs> because <laughs> I, I don't come here to tell you exactly what design and social practice is. I'm asking you to be in relationship with me to think through that together. And every time I speak with somebody, it's somewhat a little bit different. Maybe sometimes we're saying the same thing, but we're saying it in different language and there's space for that. And I think that that's like really what Deem as a publication holds across each issue. And is I think fundamentally what I'm really proud of. Um, the entire team kind of coming together to work on and accomplish. You should be proud. And uh, I look forward to every issue and I'm thrilled that something like this exists. And I'm also really, really thrilled that I'm talking to the editor in chief right now. It <laughs> makes me really happy. Um, <laughs> one other thing I'm fascinated about, about you is you're also very invested in food 
we talked about music. We talked about so many of the things that have informed your your creative outputs, but food's a huge piece of it too. Can you tell me how food plays into your career? Food has been a tool for sense making for me for a while. I will first and foremost say that I am not a chef. So anybody listening to this podcast, don't assume that I will cook you a very delicious meal. I can cook something that I think you might think is nice, but um, I usually have a chance of working with chefs to actually kind of cultivate a specific point of view or a conversation around food. Um, I had the chance of of working with a good friend of mine, uh, Sybil St. Odd Tate. Yeah, maybe about five or six years ago, we started a platform called Earthseed Provisions. And really that space was a way for us to make self of ourselves, make sense of ourselves um, and our identities as uh, first generation Haitian Americans kind of living and thinking a lot about a land and a landscape that we no longer can forge a physical connection with, but also still hold and, and kind of cherish a lot of stories that are disseminated through food. And so that has been one way of thinking about it and one way of being about it. Um, and I've been very thankful to do that work with Sybil. She now actually owns, uh, along with her husband, a space called Honeysuckle Provisions, which I highly recommend people checking out. It's in Philadelphia. Also very much intentional, like all of these beautiful stories that are held and shaped around food. And it's also very delicious. And in addition to that, I also have a have a food practice that is also place-based with my husband, Eckers, and it's called Tumbo, and it's a narrative culinary concept that really kind of thinks through some of the, the principles of washoku, which is the, the culture around Japanese cuisine. And um, Eckers and I met in Japan um, many years ago, and he's actually studied in a, um, a style of food called kaiseki, which is a hyper-seasonal, uh, multi-course meal that is that has its kind of roots in Kyoto, actually, and it's a part of the tea ceremony. Oh, I mean, having the chance to experience a meal like that in Kyoto really bought me, you know, to tears every time, just because the whole idea with this food is that you are kind of presenting these very subtle changes in nature that are happening pretty much every four days because they operate on a 72-season seasonal calendar. So, the season changes every four days and you get a chance to see yeah, these very small changes in the landscape and they're represented through food. And I, and I just thought it was so beautiful, but I think there's also something that I'm, I'm kind of feeling into a little bit more, especially with an upcoming collaboration that I have with another collaborator and friend, Say Young Oh, uh, where we're thinking a lot about like food in the senses as another way of expressing plurality. I feel like sometimes it's a little bit easier to kind of understand that, um, we'll be working on a multi-sensory dinner together in the next couple of weeks. And one of the things that's going to be really exciting is that there's an olfactory component to the to the food experience. And the idea is that nobody will receive that scent in the same way. You know, your sense of scent is kind of formed by your by your life experiences. So the way that you would perceive a scent is probably different from the way that I would. And it just holds space for that. So I really love thinking about food in the senses as other ways to kind of feel into this pluralistic practice that I'm, I'm very much interested in being grounded in. So that's kind of a little bit about how I approach food and, and why it's important to me. Just to bring it back to listening, as I'm hearing you tell me this story, it it feels very much like your work through food is you listening to the earth. <laughs> it is. And it's been really beautiful. I think it really helps me like acknowledge and listen to the relationship that I have with the landscape. And and that can be cultural, but that can also be quite practical and literal. And I, and I think that that's really kind of I think where a lot of my practice is headed as well. I think it's really thinking about relational landscapes, both physically and metaphorically. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Relational landscapes. Can you unpack that a little bit? I can maybe bring us to another place, which is Japan, um, that I've mentioned a few times, which has been foundational for me in many ways. And maybe this is going to get a little bit emotional because... I've been to Japan. Actually, my first time I went to Japan, I went with Nugote and my friend Brian, who I mentioned earlier, actually, when I was working in music. And my second time going back, I went for work. And during this time, I met my partner on this trip. But also, I lived in Berlin for a year and I had a not a great experience. Like the experience wasn't so great that I actually used to move around the world quite regularly with a lot of confidence. And I think after that experience, it was a little bit traumatic and I was going to Japan and I was, you know, the first time I'd been, I'd been with my two good friends and I was going for work and I was traveling alone and it was a little nerve wracking for me. But there was something about accessing Japan that really opened me up to myself. I think one, if I'm being completely honest, it allowed me to be in my body as a as a black woman with, with a sense of safety that I actually haven't really felt before, before traveling there. And that was very transformative for me because I became aware of it because at that point, then I started going to Japan regularly because my partner was living there. And I was also then going to Kyoto a lot more than Tokyo. So I was having a whole different type of kind of relationship with the place. But it was such an interesting thing to observe because when I would get to, to Kyoto, I would see myself almost like tripping over my own shadows because I, you know, I was just so I'm always accustomed to watching my back, like on the lookout, being on guard all of the time. So there's something about having the opportunity for the first time in your life to not be on guard all of the time, that was the most liberating experience for me. Thus, I have formed a relationship with the landscape of Kyoto in a way where it's allowed me to come into my body. It's allowed me to come into my senses. When you're not constantly worried about like survival and safety and you can move into a mindset where you can think about what it means and feels like in your body to thrive, like you can observe and smell. I will always say like it helped me stop and literally smell the flowers. 
I have just been oriented in the world in a very different way. And, and that place I, I will never forget because it really had transformed the way in which I could kind of exist on this planet for myself. I'm so interested in this and, and why potentially the landscape of Japan was able to offer this for you. And, you know, I wonder what you think, but part of what I'm thinking is that as a body of land, of a, of a place on the earth where there hasn't been like widespread trauma that's for black bodies that has been unreconciled and unacknowledged and unrepaired. Exactly, Amy. <laughs> There's something about when I go there that it just really allows me to move and feel into my humanity. I always say that when I go there, actually, my faith literally feels restored in humanity. The levels of kindness that people have extended to me beyond verbal language, which I think is also something that I really enjoy being in Japan because I do not speak Japanese currently. Maybe in the future I will. I would love to learn. The types of things that we could communicate with each other just by body language, you know, has also moved me to tears many times. Um, the types of grace that people have extended to me um, from small things like me getting lost one time in Kyoto, my first time, and, and my phone died and I needed to charge my phone. And, and literally the restaurant owner was like, it was kind of the end of the night, but he was just like, okay, like you can charge your phone here. All of this, not with any uh, verbal language, but we're all kind of, you know, moving in the space together and I'm, I'm showing and trying to do some gestures. He basically is like, okay, like you can charge your phone for a little bit. And then he closes down and then he's asked me basically, where am I staying? And I show him where I'm staying and he basically close, he feeds me. <laughs> then he tells me he will not allow me to pay for the meal, him and his wife actually. And then they close the restaurant down and they walk me home. You know, there's something about people being unthreatened by you. I, it's just, actually really hard to say. I haven't ever really spoken about this publicly because it's something I've been trying to make a lot of sense of, but it is something that has meant a lot to me, like what it means to just be a human. Japan has allowed me to, yeah, I think really come into my humanity in a way that I haven't really been offered before. I would say at the same time, having roots in the Caribbean and I think also inherently having this kind of connection to island culture there are a lot of similarities culturally that i have identified between what i know of haitian culture and my time the the short time but the very kind of meaningful time that i've had a chance to spend in in haiti and also really trying i think right right now i'm in a place of going into a deep personal practice of like these relational landscapes of most specifically this one part of Haiti called Jacmel and Kyoto, which is basically where I feel like I came into my humanity. And I really want to kind of spend some time exploring those things through food, through, through research, through music, through conversation. And that's really something that I'm, that I'm looking forward to. And I think it's maybe another point that I, that I would like to share with you around uh, research. Like, what is my approach to research? I, I mentioned it earlier. It's like this ritual of listening, right? I think it's, it's very much like I use research as a way to kind of make space for myself. In doing that, maybe some I create some sort of relational form. Maybe it's a publication. Maybe it's an event. Maybe it's something like that. I'm really big on relational forms through broadcasting and, and yeah, and live performances and publications and installations, all types of things. But Ultimately, the research practice is really for me to come back to myself every time. Like, I will always be a researcher. I might change all the other things that are around me, but at my heart, I will always be a researcher. And I'll never forget, I had one teacher actually in college that <laughs> warned me about research. She said, you need to be careful because research is endlessly seductive. And I was just like, you're right. <laughs> and here's where I found myself. Um, 
it, it, it is something that really kind of continues to call me back to myself. And so I feel like right now in my life where my research is taking me, I think in, 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 this, in, my, in my personal research and where it's taking me is this kind of idea of relational landscapes. It will possibly bloom into other things that I'm doing as well. But in a very personal expression, it will really be around these two places that I feel a deep sense of belonging to and when I'm and, and within. There's a, somebody once said to me something that was so simple was like, follow where the good energy is. It sounds to me like these two places that have allowed you to come into your humanity and access such a deep reservoir of self is exactly where the generative energy is. And research in the way that you describe it also sounds like an act of self-love in addition to expanding your knowledge base and filling your curiosity. It's creating space for you to do the things that are nourishing to yourself. Indeed. Thank you for hearing me and seeing me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing yourself. When we talk about that, it makes me want to ask if you had to struggle to give yourself permission to receive that kind of love from yourself or from others, or if it's something that you've always found a natural rhythm for. I think that I've always had a natural rhythm for it in my life because I come from a very loving, generous, incredible family that I'm, I'm very thankful for in so many ways. There was this kind of graph that had been circulating the internet recently about like the amount of time you spend with your family and your lifespan, essentially, and how it pretty much like is super high and kind of like peaks at your 20s. And then it pretty much like decreases significantly afterwards. And I feel like maybe I'm going to relate that because it's I've been thinking about that a lot. That loving rhythm and frequency has always been a part of me. And I think maybe when I went out into the real world and maybe start started to stop spending as much time with my family, I started to learn a bunch of other things that were maybe a little bit more harmful around just not acknowledging yourself, not even just allowing yourself time and space to take care I would say that maybe the arc of kind of returning to that is my time in Japan and that stillness that I had to be able to actually kind of tap back into it. So it's a source that I've already had. I can't lie. I think it was extracted from me at some point in my 20s, but I also have always known that I've had that. So it's been great to have spaces that you could access to reconnect with yourself in that way. I think it has been hard at some point, but it's inherently what I know. It's an intergenerational knowledge and and power that I have. But I do think at some point in my life, I I may be dissociated from it. And I'm happy to kind of come back into that and affirm that. When you describe yourself, you you describe yourself as a a design-based researcher, publisher, and a host. I really would love to learn what you mean by host. I mean, I sort of understand it when you talk about food. Even Dean feels like an act of hospitality in many ways because you're cultivating these really rich places and conversations for us to feel included and welcomed and nourished. It feels even kind of rebellious to just openly call yourself a host as part of your (laughs) creative practice. And I I love that. And it's funny to me because I'm a host of this podcast, but like we sort of dissociated from that word, but I take it really seriously. Like we're hosting each other right now and we're listening to each other. You know, there's this digital buffer between us, but there's a mutual interest. Like I'm proud of being a host, not because I'm a presenter or in media. I'm I'm proud of building a platform that I can hold space for people. And I love that you 
legitimize it and actually cultivating that in a in a way that's that's beautiful. I'd love for you to talk about why host is so important to you as part of your creative description. I really appreciate you for asking this question and for not overlooking it and for also not questioning. (laughs) You're asking me to elaborate on it, but you also see me in this way. And I think sometimes people are like, why would you put that in there? I ultimately believe that hosts have a significant amount of responsibility. And I think from a cultural perspective, and it also relates back to food, the things that the, the kind of roles that we assign value to are warped. You know, I think Being a host is the ultimate responsibility to me. It is something I take a lot of pride in. It is inherently a means of making people feel welcome, making people feel safe, creating, you know, space for connection, creating ways for relating. It's also part of cultivating a practice of care. Like, I think it's the most important part of my work. And I think literally in, you know, each one of the other intersections, that would be the foundational thing that I think that I could say that I do. I am a host, generally. I am here to be a facilitator. I'm here to kind of, yeah, be a space holder. A lot of the work that I do is focused on creating platforms and there does need to be some sort of relation there. And somebody has to be responsible for creating that. And to me, that is some of the most important work. And everybody has a responsibility to it, whether they see that or not. Um, So it's just something I really want to lift up. I just feel also just very dissatisfied at, you know, the lack of compassion and acknowledgement for the type of labor that goes into service generally. And so maybe in a way, this is me really trying to call attention to that. Like the people that care for you, the people that like make you food, like all of these things that, you know, literally nourish you. That is some of the most important labor. Agreed. I talked a little bit about working in brands, you know, having some space in advertising and also kind of going between different worlds of like working with teachers in high schools or whatever. And you just, See the discrepancy of how these types of labor is valued, and it fundamentally bothers me at my core that you get paid an extreme amount of money for writing an advertising ad, but people that are welcoming you into a space to nourish you aren't valued in the same way. And or the same thing around people that are responsible for educating your kids (laughs) and for you. I fundamentally have a really hard time, no matter where I'm at in the world, around how people assign value to different types of labor. So I think it is me subverting that term to make sure that people know that that to me is the most important type of labor. Hear, hear. I'm grateful for that. And it also makes me value the term host, my own relationship to the word host, because it's just predominantly viewed through a sort of media descriptor. But I'm not going to think of it like that anymore. Because that's not really how I've ever thought of it. So I'm grateful to you for doing that. Hosts often consider the ambiance of a situation. And ambiance frequently involves the senses, including music. So this is all me trying to drive towards (laughs) back to music and listening. And since music has been so foundational and important to you, I have two questions. The first one is just... Are you still engaged with dance? Oh, not as much as I would like it to be. But I always am like, girl, you need to reconnect with this. Because when I dance, I feel free. I feel like everything gets to move through me. I feel my most expressive. Actually, I was thinking my partner and I might just like, it's been COVID. I used to at least go lose myself on a dance floor sometime. I, just, I, I haven't done that. Maybe I did a little bit this summer. I went to London and I had to just 
sweat it out, but yeah. <laughs> I, not as often as I used to, you know, I would like to make more space for that. But if a good tune comes on, I can't say that I'm not going to move. <laughs> good. Um, yes. <laughs> so then in curating the soundtrack of your life, do you have songs or tracks you go to when you need to feel hopeful or process grief or even access the transcendent? Accessing the transcendent, I'm always going to Alice Coltrane and John Coltrane. I talked earlier about me moving to Los Angeles for a little while, and I'm very, I'm very committed to the idea that I moved there to kind of like access two spirits. One was the spirit of Alice Coltrane, and the other was the spirit of Octavia Butler. Oh and, man! <laughs> um, and I really do feel like I did have a chance to. I actually, um, in one of my gigs, I had a chance to recreate an ashram she had started in Agora Hills. Um, in New York. And so I actually went and I went to the ashram in Agora Hills in, in California a couple of times, actually had this crazy moment where I had walked in and some um, people that were kind of taking care of the ashram were kind of, they were holding a service and I came in and I was wearing a specific color and they had basically at towards the end of the service, they asked me what my name was. And I told them that my name was Alice and they were very moved actually and I think they felt something because they were like, that's a color that she used to wear. I also knew this a little bit because of my research around her and this, the different colors of saris that she would wear. It's kind of like a coral color that I was wearing. I mean, I was just so happy to be on that land. It is actually sacred indigenous land. The crazy part about the ashram is that it no longer exists. Around the time that I was going, there was, a lot, I think, a lot of issues around them thinking about selling the ashram, actually. And I think only about... Maybe four months later, there was a crazy fire in that area and the ashram actually burned. So the ashram does not exist anymore. That was the earth reclaiming it. So it couldn't be. (laughs) Exactly. And I've just always felt this relationship to her and John because, you know, listening to her music after John passes on in some of her songs, you can literally hear her channeling him. And it's this like really amazing way of just understanding the complexities of what it means to live in multiple lifetimes and also to have like a spiritual deep connection with somebody um, beyond the physical body. And I feel like I'm able to, yeah. So there's just Alice Coltrane's harp is how I access the transcendent any and every time. I'm so glad I asked. (laughs) That was, (laughs) that was so such a great story. Alice, you've shared so much. I'm so grateful that you found a place in Kyoto where you could access your full humanity. And I mean, I'm just really moved. I'm really moved by that. Thank you for for telling that story and using language so effectively to help me kind of resonate with what that might be like for you. I want to say thanks for hosting this space for me to share the breadth of these stories. These are stories that I have a chance to have with friends or people that know me. Maybe now I'm making some new friends through the podcast, but I do feel like they have inherently been really important. But I also think, you know, I like to take time with things. I'm a, I'm a bit of a slow thinker, which I'm very proud of. It feels nice to have kind of meditated on this for a while and, and, and feel comfortable in this space to be able to share it and also to feel like it's being received. Um, so I, I really want to thank you for that as well. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Alice, including images of her work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us when you share Clever with your friends. 
You can also listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss anything. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.